Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai, lehenu melech ha'olam, asher kidshenu b'mitzvotav, etzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to speak to you today about being a blessing, and you can turn in your Bibles to the Torah portion for this week, Parshat Lech Lecha, Genesis chapter 12. This is one of the great and most popular for me uh, Torah portions. It's, it starts this way. The Lord said to Avram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And the Hebrew Lech Lecha means something like this, get up and get out. And what's very clear is Avram had to do it himself. The Lord was not going to get Avram up. The Lord told Abraham to get up. And there are times when in order to enter into the next chapter of your life and God's plans for you, you're going to have to Get your tuchus out of the chair. You're going to have to get moving in the direction God's showing you. And if you say, if the Lord wants me to do it, he'll take me there, then you will have neglected one of the most important things about what it means to be a son or a daughter of Abraham and Sarah. And that is to receive instructions from the Lord and to respond to those instructions. When God says, get up and get out, my advice is, Get up and get out. Now, it's always a danger whenever we're speaking at Lech Lecha that that people who need to stay put want to run away. And they read Lech Lecha and they think, oh, this is the Lord. I can escape finally. But if you're one of those people who's just trying to escape, Lech Lecha is not the word for you. You need something else. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. Verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So the Lord says, I want you to get up and I want you to start moving in the direction that I'm going to show you and go to the destination I will show you. I have a place for you. And I have prepared it, and I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. At that time, as you know, Abraham and Sarah had no children. And so this was a promise that was quite, quite extraordinary. Now, if you have any English translation other than the complete Jewish Bible by David Stern, I want to ask you, to look at the last phrase in verse 2. Mine, in some of my English translations, says, and you will be a blessing. How many of you have that in your translation? You will be a blessing. Uh, What version has that? Life Application Study Bible. A loud voice so I can hear. NIV, New International Version, has that. Some versions have it a little bit differently. No, don't give me the complete Jewish Bible yet. We're going to get to that. I, I, I like how David Stern renders it, but I want you to compare how your Bible renders it 
When the English says you will be a blessing, it conveys this idea that it's sort of a prediction about what's going to happen. You will be a blessing. It's, it's a statement about the future, and it's just going to happen. You're going to be a blessing. Hallelujah. Now, there are some other English translations that use a different form. They say, you shall be a blessing. How many of you have that in your translation? What translations have that? King James, New King James. Several others as well. And in English, shall has two uses. One is it can be the future, just like will. But there's another aspect to it where it, it's sort of a, a conditional statement, like you should, you shall. The translation that David Stern gives, I think, is a good one. And what does it say? You are to be a blessing. You are to be a blessing. And that's a different tone than you will be a blessing. If I say you will be, it sounds like it's just going to happen. If I say you are to be, it sounds like there's something for you to do. When Martin Buber was working on a translation of the Torah and Tanakh into German, he was paying attention to the Hebrew. I don't speak German, by the way. So I'm relying on his recollections of all of this and comments on it. But he thought that the Hebrew was very clear, that the Hebrew was speaking in, in an imperative and in a commanding way. And so he rendered his translation accordingly. So in English, it would come out like this, be a blessing. Another version was be thou a blessing, if you like thou's and these and such things. Be a blessing. It's a command, be a blessing. So if we understand the Hebrew and the tone, I think that we would come away with the same conclusion. God is not making a prediction. He's not saying this is going to be your future condition. He's saying, I want you to live a certain way. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. And we can see that many people like this idea of being a blessing if they think they will get blessed. God says, I will bless you. You be a blessing. And many people are thinking, yes, I want to be a blessing to all my friends and those who agree with me, everyone who's in the same political party as me or on the same part of the political spectrum or those who have the same skin color or education that I have or work in the same careers or so forth. It's very common to think that the people who are like us are the ones who are most deserving of blessing. It's actually self-serving. You can understand that. If I think if you're enough like me, you should be blessed, what I'm really thinking is I should be blessed. But the Lord is not saying to Abraham, find the people who are just like you and bless them. Later on, Yeshua commented about how hard it is for people to get the scope into their own hearts and minds. He said, everyone can love their friends. I'm telling you, love your enemies. I, I can tell you this. Anytime I say love your enemies, even though Yeshua said it, I'm, it's not original to me. I'm just quoting him. There are always people who are thinking, Levine, you are so naive. You don't even know this real world we're living in. To which I say, not me, him. I'm not the one who said it. I'm just repeating it. 
Yeshua said, love your enemies. Now let's look at what the Abrahamic call is. Because everybody wants the blessings of Abraham. I, I can ask you a question. How many of you would prefer to prosper rather than be broke? How many people would prefer to have good health rather than to be sick? How many would prefer to have clothes rather than be naked? How many would prefer to have food rather than to go hungry? How many would prefer to have a nice home rather than to be homeless? Right? How many people would rather burn in hell no, how many people would rather live with God forever rather than burn in hell? Amen. How many would rather live with God than have worms eating you, fiery worms eating you, your reanimated corpse? Yeah, you see how easy it is? Everybody wants the blessing sign. Everybody does. Here's the deal. You may want the blessing, but you're called to be a blessing. And if you say, I want to be like Abraham, I want to be like Sarah, I'm a son or a daughter of Abraham, I'm a son or a daughter of Sarah, then what you're saying is, I want to grasp the call that was on their life and I want to embrace it, I want to live as they did. And I can tell you this, they were not called to just bless those who were like them. Because the scripture says more. Verse 5, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. All. Say that with me. All. All the families of the earth. All the families of the earth. Now in some messianic communities... Everybody's in favor of blessing the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're not so clear about blessing Ishmael and his boys and girls. And the reason is they don't think that he's a son of Abraham, but he's a son of Abraham, and God said, I'll make a covenant, a different covenant, mind you. But when you want to be true to this calling, it means that we have to think about the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. We have to think about them both as sons and daughters of Abraham, and we have to consider them worthy of blessing rather than curse. This is one of the great challenges, to think of people sometimes who are taking positions as enemies, to think of them as worthy of blessing and that the heart of God wants to redeem them, restore them, renew them, sanctify them, and so forth, rather than destroy them. That's hard. But Abraham was called to think that way, because in you, Abraham, the Lord said, all the families, say that with me again, all the families of the earth will be blessed, or will bless themselves, will learn to bless themselves. So this is a calling that God gave to Abraham. And I was thinking how important it is to be a blessing. 
and how hard it is to be a blessing. And for some reason, I was remembering uh, the Boy Scout oath or the Boy Scout promise. How many of you were Boy Scouts? Can I see? How many of you can recite it perfectly from memory right now in unison together? Oh, it starts on my honor. I'm helping you. Let's hear it. Uh, let's hear all the Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts, stand up. I'm putting you on the spot. Okay, I'm going to help you out because I, ha- I, I was not a Boy Scout. Um, the Girl Scout law, I don't know what that was. But um, I, I'm going to read it, and you can join with me if you remember it. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. How'd they do? (laughs) Any Eagle Scouts among us? You're an Eagle? Eagle, Eagle. Any Eagle Scouts? Well, this is a sorry lot. (laughs) Usually there's somebody who's an Eagle Scout in a big enough group. Okay, well... So I was thinking how honorable this, this statement is. And I, I have fondness for the Boy Scouts. Sandy's dad, C.W. West, was a director of the Boy Scouts in the Muskogee, Oklahoma region. It was his career. He was really great at it. And he was really committed to scouting. And, and so, you know, I have great affection for him and, and for his legacy. I was thinking about these virtues, including this one, to help other people at all times. Isn't that a great aspiration, to help other people at all times? Now, here's the thing I was asking myself. As great as the Boy Scout law is, the oath and the law, do you think God had more in mind for Abraham than the Boy Scouts? Yeah. So he must have wanted even more than this. We could say, this is good. You know, not only will you help little old ladies across the street, you'll help all people, other people at all times. Great. Fantastic. And so this idea that we would try to be a blessing, that we would want to be a blessing, that we would consider other people worthy of blessing, that is an important idea. And the understanding that we're called to be a blessing as sons and daughters of Abraham is of paramount importance. Because in order to do that, it must be in our hearts. If we don't let it in our hearts, it'll never get into our practices. And this is a perspective that's so important. To consider all kinds of people worthy of being blessed to consider all nations as valued by God and to find reasons to value people, young and old, people like you and people different from you. When I was preparing for this, I had a a memory of an experience a couple dozen years ago, pretty much, where I got contact lenses. And it was right before... I I started wearing contact lenses. It was right before a trip we were making to Israel. 
So I got these lenses, and I had worn glasses, physical glasses, for many years, but I thought it would be so great to have contact lenses because it would mean when it rains, I don't get all foggy, and when it snows, I don't get all fogged up. And we lived in Rochester, New York, and it was either raining or snowing almost all the time, it seemed there. So I got contact lenses, and Sandy and I went to Israel, and it seemed like every morning I got up an extra hour early to try to put these contact lenses on. And now, having done it, I can, I can take my glasses off, I can touch my eye, I don't have that terrible blink reflex or anything. But at the time, my eye would blink so hard, but when I would get the contacts in, I, something happened, they were so uncomfortable, it just hurt. And I thought, I just have to endure it. It would take me an hour each morning to get them in. And then I'd walk around all day, bloodshot and feeling terrible. And this went on for the, the several weeks we were in Israel. But I persevered. I kept putting in those contacts. Every so often, it seemed like they felt okay. I didn't know why. I, I thought there was just a lot of Israeli dust, which is old and sharp and Israeli pollen. That must be the reason. I, I don't know. But I came back to the eye doctor, and I said, I had the worst time. I don't think I'm really fit for contacts. It took me an hour to put them in. And then they were painful. And he said, uh, show me how you did it. And so I went through the process of getting the contact lens on my finger and trying to get it in my eye and failing, and it was taking a long time. And, and then I finally got it in. I said, like that. And he looked at me and he said, well, I understand what's wrong. You're putting them in inside out. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out when a, when a soft contact lens is, is inside out, it has a sharp edge rather than a softened edge that comes against the eye. And so I had this sharp edge that's scraping me all the time. And because it's inside out, it wants to pop back to the right side. So then he showed me the microprint on the contact lens, which I knew was there, but I thought you were supposed to look at the wrong side in order to figure out what was the right side. I, I just had it all wrong. And Craig, I know this must sound amusing to you as an optometrist, but... And I hope you never had a patient like me. But he said, do it this way. And he showed me how to look at the lens and how to put it on my finger, how to put it in. And I said, gee, that's easy. <laughs> Not so hard. And it changed everything because I could see differently. Can you imagine having this uh, piece of plastic in your eye that wants to pop I could see clearly. I could see differently. I was comfortable. It changed my perspective on what I could see. And the Lord was reminding me of that experience because it, it's, what I'm talking about is not about contact lenses. It's about something else, but it has to do with perspective and how you see and the connection between that in your heart and your thoughts. 
They're all connected together. And if you really want to be a son or a daughter of Abraham, if you really want to walk in the covenant that God made with the Jewish people that he uh, renewed through Messiah, if you really are serious about that, then you have to get into your heart the scope of interest that God has so that you can have the perspective he has so that you can see things the way he sees them, not the way you were seeing them. Otherwise, none of it will make sense. Otherwise, you won't see certain things and you won't understand certain things. Your thoughts will be wrong. Your emotions will be wrong because your way of seeing is inside out. It's working in the wrong way. It's so important to get this right, to get your perspective right, if you want to be a blessing, and you can be a blessing. Now, I think when we see things from God's perspective, we'll start valuing people that others don't consider worthy of his blessing. We'll treat people differently. We'll minister differently. We'll have interest and sensitivity to people that we don't have any other way. Now, with that in mind, I want to share with you a fascinating and controversial debate that has been happening the last few days among Messianic rabbis in the International Alliance of Messianic Congregations and Synagogues. We've been debating the the question, how should we view Martin Luther? The reason this question is a timely one is because in a few days on uh, October 31st, it will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and certain historical events associated with it. And there's a question, how to view Martin Luther? And I can tell you that among the Messianic rabbis, there's a wide range of opinions about this. And there are some who think he's a saint and some who think he's a villain. And generally, as I notice the nature of the conversation and the debate, which was remarkably polite, though sharply differentiated in opinions. I noticed this, that there were certain people who said, let's think about the good in Martin Luther, and let's focus on that. Now, I can ask you this question. If you only think about the good, about anything, what conclusions will you come to? It's good, yeah. By definition, you will. I once taught a class of Christian leaders, and I did something terrible to them. I divided the group into two sides. One side, I handed out scriptures about Balaam that only spoke about good things about Balaam. To the other side, I handed out scriptures that only spoke about evil that he did. I didn't tell them this. They thought they all got the same thing. And then I asked this question, was Balaam good or evil? And one side of the room said, he was great. And the other side of the room was outraged and said, how can you even talk like that? He was awful. To which the other side of the room said, how can you say that? And they started quoting scriptures, but they were different scriptures. And there was this moment where one side said, wait, we don't have those scriptures. And I said, okay, I, I got to tell you the truth. I, I gave you guys only the good ones and you guys only the bad ones. And it was a moment of danger for me. <laughs> I, I can tell you it was unforgettable. I, I can't say it was pleasant. 
because they were angry that I had done this and put them in that position. But I said, I just wanted to show you something. If you only look at the good, you'll come to this conclusion. If you only look at the bad, you'll come to another conclusion. But what happens when you look at all of it together? What conclusion do you come to? Some of them couldn't come to any conclusion. And I understand that when you look at the details of Martin Luther's life and you only look at the good, you might say, well, you know, the whole Reformation depended on him. But that requires that you ignore the evil that he did. And I want to read to you from some of the things that Martin Luther wrote in his, his uh, piece called The Jews and Their Lies. He said, he asked this, What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? And he had a set of conclusions and advice. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. I'm just reading some of the lines. Fourth, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. I read an article in Christianity Today, a debate between two Christian theologians who... who we're asking this question, how to view Martin Luther in light of these things. One of them quoted all of these. This, this is uh, directly you know, from the translation from Martin Luther's writings. And then he asked this question, was Martin Luther an anti-Semite? I don't think so. Some tried to debate, was he an anti-Semite or just anti-Judaic? To which I would think, if you're burning alive inside of a synagogue set fire by someone who took his words seriously, does it really matter? His position was evil. His position was intentional. His position was aggressive, and others used it later during the Holocaust, Kristallnacht. Not everything that was done by the Nazis was inspired by Martin Luther, for sure. We can say that. And in fact, the whole Nazi, uh, the whole Nazi philosophy was anti-Christian, anti-Bible, anti-Jewish. It was pagan. It was uh, Nordic in some ways. It was Aryan. However. For the evangelicals in the Protestants in Germany, the writings of Martin Luther were influential and shaped their view of what should happen. So when Adolf Hitler and the Nazis came into power, it fit into some of the views that the Germans were prepared for. 
And I do know that there was the confessing church. I know the history. I know the details. I know that there were Christians who stood up against other Christians and said, we must stand with the Jews and protect the Jews, who, who refused to give in to the Nazi regime. I know that. But by and large, the Protestant society of Germany had been prepared through Martin Luther's writings and those who honored and esteemed him to be complicit in what was done to the Jewish people. Now, I know in talking about this, we're, we're treading on delicate ground because Martin Luther is a hero for many people. And the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation for many people is a turning point, not for all. But I want to explain to you why Jewish people don't always see it that way and why Messianic Jews are even divided on this matter. And it really boils down to this Are we willing to look at, as the rest of the Jewish world is, are we willing to look at the evil positions that Martin Luther took and to acknowledge those facts? Or do we simply want to erase them from our minds and act as if they're not true? It's hard. It's hard to look at such things. But once you look at them, To me, it's quite clear that Martin Luther should not be held in esteem as a hero of faith because he was unfaithful to the Scriptures. He was unfaithful to the God of the Scriptures and the Messiah of the Scriptures. And so his advocacy for sola scriptura was false because he held other things in higher regard, including his hatred of the Jews. Now, I know that some of the Messianic rabbis said, well, we have to put things in balance and understand the times, and that he wasn't the originator of anti-Semitism. Let's go further back to Oregon and, and Augustine. And to that I say, the fact that he wasn't original doesn't mean his evil wasn't intentional or egregious. But in any case, it means, if we face the facts, that he's not a hero of faith for us, and that we will not hold him in high regard. To which some say, yes, but think of the good that's come out of all of this. To which I say, well, then let's, let's consider Pharaoh one of our heroes. Because through him, the Jewish people learn to cry out to God. Or let's consider Haman one of our heroes. Because we learn to fast and pray and so forth. It, it, you can't consider them heroes of faith. You can say God is able to take even the evil that others are doing and turn it upside down and rescue people and turn evil situations around in such a way that some good can come out of it, as Joseph famously said. But that doesn't make those people heroes of faith. And I was comparing this to something else which is, was emotionally hard for me. I started reading and, and recognizing that one of my heroes as a person raised in Virginia and educated in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, was not actually a hero. That he was compromised. Not only was he uh, a slave owner of some 600 slaves over history, but he was a rapist. 
And those are hard words. It's so hard to think of him that way because I think of all the presidents from Virginia as being, you know, like the best men. But he had a terrible flaw in that he raped some of his slaves and bore children through them. And according to law, he was a rapist. It's so hard for me to think of him that way. It's so hard for me to deal with the facts of what he did. And I, like many, want to sweep that under the rug and sanitize it in a different way and just say, well, yeah, but think about the Declaration of Independence. But you can't see the whole picture if you don't see all those details. And so I realized, oh my gosh, even to talk about this can be dangerous. I remembered that more than 20 years ago, my wife Sandy wrote an article for our congregational newsletter in Rochester in which she quoted from Martin Luther and his work concerning Jews and their lies and simply presented the facts of Martin Luther's anti-Semitism and uh, vile advocacies. And, and one of our friends in the congregation said something. We were remembering it yesterday a little differently than we thought about it today. We thought, yesterday we were thinking, he said, uh, I don't know whether you're courageous or foolish. But today we were thinking about it. It was more like this, because we were sort of recalling it together. I don't know whether you're brave or stupid. <laughs> and I can, I can say that I, I don't know. You know, maybe it's being stupid. But it's important to bring these things up. If we really believe that those who bless the sons and daughters of Abraham are blessed by God and those who curse them are in a very different position, how do we apply that to people? How do we actually apply that? Well, at the very least, I'm willing to say Martin Luther is not my hero. At the very least, I'm willing to say that. And at the same time, say, oh my gosh, Thomas Jefferson isn't my hero either. It's hard to find heroes. Let Abraham and Sarah be heroes for us. Let Yeshua be heroes. Let those who the scriptures say are heroes, let them be heroes. I'm sure this is going to stir some things. Which is why I'm leaving town. <laughs> no, actually, we have, we have to go. And we made plans earlier. Before I even knew I was going to speak about Martin Luther in this whole process, we made plans that Rabbi Uri would close the service with the ironic benediction, and Sandy and I would scoot out so we can make it to where we have to go. But I thought, okay, this is, this is good to stir some things up, isn't it? And then to get out before anybody can talk to us. <laughs> so, thank you for listening to this. I, I want to provoke you to thoughtfulness on these difficult questions so that we really can move forward in our calling, the calling of Abraham. So, Rabbi Yuri, adios. We're leaving. <laughs> Don't take it out on him. <laughs> <laughs>
And uh, of course, if you want to smile at us, you can. Okay. Thank you. I have no words to say, really. <laughs> so let's stand up together and close out our, our service, our Shabbat with a prayer, with our benediction. So let's take pause to allow Rabbi David and Rabbi and Sandy to escape the room and pray together. <laughs> So let's pray. Yevrecha Adonai, vehishmerecha. Yaher Adonai, Pana Velecha, vihunecha. Issa Adonai, Pana Velecha, veyasem lecha, shalom. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat Be a blessing. Amen.